Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. The year 1920 was a pivotal one for the Lemp family of St. Louis. And that's not just because the family had made its fortune in brewing and suddenly prohibition was the law of the land. 100 years ago this week, Elsa Lemp Wright took her own life. This is the Lemp family for you, said her brother William Lemp Jr., and indeed the family had a history of suicide. But was there more to the story? Filmmaker Frankie Campbelletta thinks so. His new film grapples with the death of Elsa Lemp Wright. It's called Lemp's Last Right. Let's listen to an excerpt, which includes interviews with a few local historians. My knowledge of Elsa Lemp Wright comes from work that I do, kind of normal narratives of St. Louis history. You know, the Lemp history is so well known and, or seems to be so well known. My name is Amanda Ball Clark, and I am the manager of community tourism at the Missouri History Museum. By the time Elsa's born, she's, you know, the third generation of the Lemps in St. Louis. When she was born in 1883, that street was a very wealthy enclave. It was called Second Carondelet, then renamed South 13th Street. My name is Nene Harris, and I'm a St. Louis author and historian. It was a street that spoke of what St. Louis had been like earlier in the century. It was a street in which by the time that she was 10 years old, every single household on the street was listed in the social register, every household. She is born into great comfort. And that was local historian Nene Harris, along with Amanda Ball Clark, as featured in Lemp's Last Rite. And joining us today to talk about the film is filmmaker Frankie Campbelletta. Frankie, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. And, and thanks for uh, leading with uh, Nene and Amanda. This is uh, the two uh, women that kind of lead us through the film, the first half, about St. Louis and Elsa's life. And and so these two women, um, they are among several local historians that you interview in this film, some of them who are experts in the life of Elsa Lemp, right? And I guess one of my biggest surprises in watching this film is just how many um, historians who focused on this woman are. What made her such a focus for so many people in her own day and um, in the next 100 years? I think uh, Amanda would... Uh kind of disagree with me. Me and Amanda have become fast friends, but uh, when you read about Elsa's life, she is fairly fascinating. She is, she is somebody that you, you kind of um, embody. Uh, this is a woman that the minute that cars became available, especially race cars, Elsa goes out and picks up three uh, with her brothers. <laughs> so uh, there were no limitations for females at the time owning cars. And so when you start reading more about her life, you see all her adventures. She's a very adventurous young woman. She was born into wealth, and she knew how to uh, to flex that. But at the same time, she did come from um, a family that was an, an immigrant family. So mm-hmm. she understand. She also understood, you know, the working class as well. And she was never ever written about in a snobby or snotty way. In fact, all of her staff, when interviewed during the coroner's inquest, said that she was a lovely lady, that she was super nice, and that she was always helpful and caring. Mm-hmm. And so there were both sides about her that I think people just have a tendency to fall in love with her when you find, um, you know, what she's doing. I mean, she just, she does go on a lot of different trips. She goes to Europe, but she's also you know, braving the Bering Sea. And she takes on this crazy voyage with other St. Louisans that it it kind of just tells you, well, here's a single person, you know. Uh, she's about 23 years old. 
Mm-hmm. Um, actually, she's, maybe she's a little older than that. She's probably about 26 at this point, and she braves the Bering Sea. And when she comes back, she would meet Thomas H. Wright. So, so Th- Thomas H. Wright, that's a, that's a perfect uh, transition to the next clip I wanted to play here. She has this, this wonderful life. She's an adventurer. She's doing all this philanthropy. And then she gets yeah. married. And in your film, her husband, Thomas Wright, plays a key role in the intrigue. Let's listen to a clip from your early narration about who Thomas Wright was. After Smith Academy, Thomas goes off to Washington University and he becomes the vice president of the Moore Jones Brass Company. But the character of Thomas is mysterious, to say the least. I initially started to understand who Thomas was. He's a strategy player. His sports are all mind games. Billiards things that require a lot of thinking and planning your shot before you make it. Dark eyes That's from the film Lemp's Last Rite, and it's dealing with Thomas Wright, the husband of Elsa Lemp Wright. You seem pretty skeptical of this guy. Was that skepticism shared by the media in Elsa's heyday? It was, actually. I don't know that they had the privileges and the right to write what they actually felt. You have to understand, in 1920, the papers were really guided um, by the wealthy at this point, and especially, like, you know, newspapers like the Post-Dispatch, which is under the gun of the Pulitzer family. And so, you know, a lot of things are, are said. There are certain articles in St. Louis that we find from, a, from an amazing, if anybody ever has the opportunity to go and read anything on Much Ado, written by Harry S. Turner. He had this incredible monthly where he would put out all the scandal and all the social light and all the things that are happening within the clubs of St. Louis. And he was just this forward writer. Hmm. And so there is a mention of him and the uh, owner of the uh, star, which used to be a newspaper in St. Louis. I think his name was Edward Lewis. And he owns the newspaper and he approaches Harry S. Turner, who is an incredible writer in St. Louis. And he says, Hey, all the editors in St. Louis, do not believe this was a suicide. They believe this was murder. What say you? And then, of course, Harry, who is a member of a club that Thomas is a member of, kind of gives Thomas some air cover, but he never really touches the subject. It's this really strange thing coming from Harry S. Turner, who normally would have lit up on fire to write something that scandalous, but he doesn't. And it's a very strange kind of thing that's happening. But we do know from Elizabeth Benoit, which a lot of the scenes are filmed at the um, Oakland House, uh, mm-hmm. which is... Um, you know, right here in St. Louis. And as soon as everything is calmed down with our city, people should go out there and visit that house. So we shot the entire sequences of the film inside Oakland House, where Elizabeth Benoit, who actually dated um, Billy the Third, so this was uh, Billy Jr.'s son, mm-hmm. uh, she dated him for a time, and she remembers meeting Elsa and remembers meeting Thomas. And she makes this very strange quote in one of her books that when I met when I, when I met Elsa, she was a very uh, depressed person. She was, she's mm-hmm. the, like the black cloud hung over the whole family. But she was married to an incredibly handsome man who was tall, dark, but often reminded me of Mistopheles. So this really kind of encompasses, <laughs> it's really the only thing we have on Thomas as a description. Now, the only description that we have in St. Louis is that, somebody remind, that he reminds somebody of Mistopheles. Yeah, that's not a compliment. Is it? <laughs> it's not something that I would want. Um, I also just want to bring up that the song that you're hearing there is by a local artist by the name of Mother Stutter. And so all the music in the film is done by uh, female musicians in St. Louis, and that's headed and directed by uh, Madison Price, who's Mm -hmm. also a local musician that goes by Sister Wizard. So they helped me in instrumenting 
songs that really dictate not only Elsa, but Thomas is, is part in this film. Because I do not like doing reenactments with words because it's putting words in somebody's mouth that we do not know what they said. Mm-hmm. So we're really playing with camera and we're really playing with cinematography and music to kind of guide people through the film. So as you mentioned, you have these almost reenactments. You, you sort of weave together interviews with historians, then you have black and white footage, um, and then these yep. sort of modern-looking dramatizations. What was the hardest component to get? Uh, the hardest component to actually get was to get people that actually looked like the people. Mm. I think today we are so dependent upon CGI and making people look younger, and I think it's just terrible looking. Um, and so what we really wanted to do was find people um, that can really encompass not only the affluency of each character, but also the archetype of each character we were going for. In the case of Nathaniel A. Stewart, who plays Thomas H. Wright, he and, he's been my friend for over 20 years. He's a filmmaker. He's an actor. He just embodies Thomas. Hmm. He just knew how to play that. He comes from a wealthy family. He, he understood, you know, the, the ins and outs. Um, Carly Rosenbaum, who's actually a Washington University graduate, um, which was awesome to have a singlist uh, actor, act, act, we say actor, um, in, in the film. And she embodies Elsa to a T. Her, her mannerisms, her acting, I directed um, Carly on a couple stage plays at the Gaslight Studio. The mm-hmm. Gaslight Theater, owned by uh, William Roth. So I directed her before with my buddy Ryan Poise, and I loved her. I think that she could just be so, you know, you kind of look at the film in the black and white, and this is just paying homage, and by no means am I saying that I'm a Frank Capra, but Frank Capra talked about creating emotion without words. And because mm-hmm. he could do this, because he did a lot of silent films, and so when you kind of embody Frank Capra, when you look at his work, do you need sound? Do you need words? You don't. You need the acting to kind of pull through in those parts. Mm-hmm. And so we cut it in a way to really embody that and also pay homage to Albert Hitchcock and Orson Welles for our moms, uh, me and Miles, Miles Menard, who's a cinematographer, who's also a Webster uh, University student. So there's a lot of St. Louis in this film, and we really wanted to gravitate toward that as well. Um, so me and Miles really wanted to, you know, do something for our moms who love you know, Alfred Hitchcock and Orson Welles. So, so that's a, that's my, my a nice tribute loved. there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we're talking to filmmaker Frankie Cambaletta about his film Lemp's Last Rite that looks at the death of Elsa Lemp, right? Um, without giving any spoilers away, uh, were you able to find any concrete evidence pointing to the idea that this may have been a murder rather than a suicide? Well, I think that when you do documentary, you have to be smart about, you know, what what exactly accusations you're making. When you look at the evidence and the only evidence that we have, um, which was told to us that it didn't exist because it was washed away in a flood in 2004. Hmm. And then suddenly, miraculously, the 2000 um, in 2015 and 16. So five years ago, we received documents that I cannot name the person, but he gave us the um, the coroner's inquest, the police report and the doctor's notes. And these were things that that hitherto historians had not been able to access? No, no, none of these. I mean, Davidson Mulgard, who's probably one of my favorite Lemp historians there is, he's incredibly animated in this film. He is so knowledgeable and so rich in his interview. Uh, He even said it in the interview. I've never seen these before. Um, Hmm. Stephen Walker was even stumped. Uh, Stephen Walker had written the book, you know, The Haunting History. And so to show these guys that we look up to as mentors and Lemp historians, um, and have them get like, wow, I've never seen these before, Frank. But you have to also understand, too, that, you know, when Stephen was writing his book, he was, <clears throat> excuse me, he was writing a more broader view of the entire family. So mm-hmm. probably, maybe he could have possibly come across these documents at some point. 
Um, also, you know, like you have to understand too, like this was not done on the internet. None of what Elsa and Thomas were is on the internet. It doesn't live on the internet. The only thing that you'll find on Elsa Lemprite on the internet is probably my film at this point, hmm. and uh, sub articles from Troy Taylor's work, from Stephen Walker's work. Um, so today, when we look at it, like you have to go into the archives, and I spent a lot of time with Adele at the Central Library, who gets a shout out in the film, and the St. Louis Room, and the Genealogy Room. And, you know, we have this beautiful library in the middle of St. Louis, and people don't realize the value. I mean, we have books, and we have stuff from Napoleon in, inside there. And it, it's just an incredible way to, when you walk into that room, it's like, oh, my God, we have all this history here. It's just a thousand documentaries just waiting to be made uh, to reinvigor everything. When you talk about the evidence, not to get off tangent, you know, the evidence, I, I think that if you look at this today, and I think that the cops in the film, we have two homicide detectives. We sought mm-hmm. after two homicide detectives that had worked in the field, not somebody that just came on. We're talking about a cop that worked in the city for 35 years, a homicide detective. We're talking about Dan Matthews. We're talking about Tom Richards. Uh, I'm sorry, um, Tim Richards. These guys were cops in the city of St. Louis. They've dealt with all the rich families. They've dealt with the Bushes. They've dealt with all these different things that are happening. They look at this evidence and said, you know, this, this looks staged to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I will give away something because we had to postpone, and I, and I love your show, and I love St. Louis, so we're going give, to give your listeners a little bit that we're not giving anybody else. Well, thank you. Um, but, <laughs> you're welcome. But one of the big things is, uh, when we look at it from that standpoint, is that the biggest thing that I think calls the question everything, and there's a bunch, trust me, there's over 35 discrepancies that we'll go through in this film. But the one that really stands out that has all the cops kind of just rolling their eyes and raising the flags is the fact that there's, there's no blood. Hmm. I mean, that's that's a pretty big point right there. Right. So, and we go into that, and we show you exactly what happened. We have a CSI detective from Miami, a good friend of mine, Neil Zelensky, who's in the film. Um, so just growing up in Miami and then being in St. Louis, having all these connections kind of came full circle. We have over, and it was weird, too, I'll tell you, you know, when we look at the film, me and, me and my, uh, my editor, uh, Leo Ramsey, who's another young talent in L.A. And, and, and from St. Louis and a big guy here in the, in the acting community, you know, kind of takes a step back and is editing this film with me, and we're talking to each other. And, you know, the strangest thing kind of occurs. Um, without us even knowing, we have 13 people we interviewed. And it's just like this number 13 just keeps kind of haunting us. And it's like, I'm not a numerology guy, but... At some point, the number 13 is re- on March 13th, I had to cancel my film. So, you know, at the same <laughs> time, you know, this 13 just keeps haunting me. And so, and I'm a Miami Dolphins fan, so, you know, my Dan Marino, uh, <laughs> you know, who uh, never won a Super Bowl. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know that I even knew just, that was that was his number, but it, it does all tie together. I, I, look, in the last minute here, I know that everything has sort of been upended because of coronavirus right now. Uh, yes. But you're still hoping to do a premiere in late April if health conditions permit. Um, if folks can't make that premiere, will there be other ways to, to view this documentary? Yeah, we're, we're actually going to try to actively, um, right now, uh, I have a couple friends in Cinema St. Louis right now that I'm trying to get the film inside the festival so it would actually premiere in the festival. Mm. That way more people can see it and then do, a, um, do more of a screener for the people that already have tickets. And so they would kind of be at a point where they would see the film, they get their money's worth. Harmon Mosley has been incredibly flexible with the date. Of course, he's a movie theater owner. He understands more than anybody how COVID-19 has affected mass audiences. And so we've been able to kind of push things 
um, a little bit. Uh, right now, it's tentative at April 23rd. That might get moved again. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just want people to be safe, and that's really the focus. That's the core focus right now is just listening to the experts and, and figuring out what we're doing so people can have an enjoyable movie-going experience where they don't have to worry about the person, you know, sneezing or coughing next to them, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a hard time to be in movie theaters right now. But so it sounds like you're going to make sure this this film gets seen. It's going to see the light of day. I mean, we've put a lot of time in it. It's got five years of interviews. It's a tight documentary. I think you guys were able to see about 23 minutes of it. Mm-hmm. It's 60 in total. So it's a beautiful time. And I don't like documentaries that go over 60 minutes. They get boring for me. Um, so it's a really tight documentary. It's a fun film. Uh, I think people are really going to like the true crime aspect of it. And we hope to bring to life another documentary that we're working on called The Lost Boys of Hannibal, which is a podcast. Okay, and and that is a topic for another show, but um, we are really looking forward to I enjoyed the first last 20 minutes of of Lemp's Last Ride, and and I know our listeners will be up for it as well. So uh, filmmaker Frankie Campoletta, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Guys, stay safe. Yes, to you as well. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.